Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Right now as a clinic, and particularly for all of you on Global Wall Street, Christopher Verone is a strategist with Jason Trenet's shop, and he does exquisite trend-based work. Chris, good morning. You and I are death on trying to catch the falling knife in the dark. What is the falling knife in the dark for the equity markets? Well, it's a loser's game. It's difficult to do. Uh, You can't do it well. You can't do it well often. And I think right now, when you look at what is the falling knife in equity markets, I think you have to talk about that more from a relative perspective. What are the groups or stocks that were leaders over the last several years that are now deteriorating? And I think you look to the bond proxies for evidence of that. You see it with staples. You see it with utilities. You see it with REITs. They've actually bounced over the last few weeks, but they haven't bounced as leadership stocks. That's a big change. Who is relatively priced to perfection? Is there value away from small caps, value away from mid caps, or value away from the 40 stocks I spend too much time talking about? I think there's value in some of the smaller stocks right here. When you look at credit spreads at multi-year lows, that's often an environment that is beneficial to the smaller cap stocks. I would also say if you look at um, areas where I think there's opportunity here, I would continue to put banks uh, in that camp as well. I do not think those are priced at the right levels. I think we're going to see the rally continue there. And I would also say even within consumer discretionary, you've actually seen some pockets of improvement, perhaps even Nike being the latest stock to show some signs uh, of starting to turn. Chris, what is the one thing that's being you know mispriced if you look at some of the stocks? So I like the fact that you're looking at Nike. Are, are we mispricing or ignoring a possible trade war? And what does that mean for valuations? Yeah, well, I think when you look within um, discretionary in particular or the market at large, I think one of the great ironies here is the pockets of the market that are most outrageously priced are the more defensive corners of the market. Uh, They're the areas that have really been your leadership over the last number of years, whether it's utilities or REITs. I think that's the great irony of the tape at the moment. When we hear discussions about valuations getting too rich, it is really not in the new leadership groups. It's in the old leadership group. So I'm not as concerned about valuation here as maybe some others are. Right now, the forward PE and the S&P is about 18 or 19 times. While that's high relative to history, uh, these things rarely stop uh, at average. They tend to stop uh, well above average. Where does the Dow go from here? Are we going to touch 21,000? And what happens after 21? Does it go on to 22 and even 25? I, I think the trend is up. And you know, just to put it in terms of S&P levels, the big breakout from 2013, when we finally got above the 2007 highs, pointed to a 2,500 long-term target. Uh, so I think ultimately, uh, that's the path that we're headed. We care more about the trend than the target. And I think the trend is still up. Okay, but the, I, I get it. 
But I'm in, 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 in both Chris Verone and Francine Lacroix folks are too young to remember the glow of being up S&P 22.6 percent. And when you look at some of the currency mixes, including if Francine put her entire 401k in um, in the U.S. last year, she's up 48 percent, excuse me, 39.7 percent. Uh, if you're investing in America from the United Kingdom, come on. These are massive bull market numbers. Mm. How do you stay invested knowing there's this tra- strange thing called reversion to the mean? Strength begets strength in this business, and I think people misunderstand that. Um, I also think it's important to emphasize that most of the world went through a fairly pervasive bear market from mid-2014 through mid-2016. You had the European markets down about 30%. You had the emerging markets down 40 or 50%. 70% of all U.S. stocks went down by 20% or more. So everywhere you looked from mid-2014 through mid-2016, uh, there were bear markets. So this last leg up, I think, is the start of a new reacceleration phase, not the end uh, of an aging bull market. But Chris, is it on fundamentals or is it purely central banks? When you think of the, about the amount of liquidity out mm. there, what happens when we start normalizing? I think, if anything, the influence of central banks here may be starting to wane. And I think we saw that last summer when Japanese 10-year yields went from negative 30 basis points to zero uh, almost overnight. I think that may ultimately mark the high mark in central banking going forward. And as a consequence of that, what has happened since then? Well, we've seen correlations among stocks globally move meaningfully lower. So I think, if anything, this market is trading more on a fundamental basis today than it has been uh, over the last number of years. I think ultimately that's a healthy change. I mean, and, and again, just to get this out of the way, and we're going to come back with you to talk a little bit of theory here coming up. I, I, I look at the flummox feel of underperformance of international stocks, yeah. emerging market stocks, the totals, the Siemens of Europe, etc. Are they a value now or a value trap technically? I think there are value here. And Tom, you're absolutely right. These have been pockets uh, of the market globally that really have underperformed, not just for the last year or two years, but for the last yeah. five, six, or seven years. I think particularly EM is starting to turn in that fashion. Look at the strength we're seeing from Hong Kong, from Brazil, from EM Financials, from EN Tech. Uh, that is positive. Yeah. I mean, do they need a bigger dividend growth? I mean, quickly here, I mean, look at Siemens 2.9% uh, dividend, but just minuscule single-digit growth. This is not Home Depot-like. Well, I think what's interesting about Siemens here, I mean, this is another example of a stock that really hasn't worked, not just for a couple years, but for 15 or 20 years. If you look yeah, at a long-term Siemens chart, Francine come, knows this. coming out of a very, very big base after a 15-year period in purgatory, uh, that interests us here. There's some big, I mean, look at BMW, mm-hmm. that one has turned, look at SAP uh, as right. well. I think there's some compelling cases to be made that some big cap German stocks have turned here. Did you did you go long Unilever 12 hours before Kraft put out that announcement, and then you covered your trade Friday before <laughs> the collapse? I, Were you the one guy that did that? I, I sure wish. Uh, <laughs> Listen, I think not dissimilar from the U.S., what we've seen uh, throughout Europe is some of the bond proxies or some of the yield stocks on a relative basis actually just are not that impressive anymore. I think you want to favor cyclicality uh, both in Europe as you do here domestically. 
Christopher Verone with us with Francie Lacroix in London. Chris, let's talk a little geek technical analysis. Let's start with moving averages. I'm death on moving averages. It's a great way to lose money. I'm death on the death cross, full disclosure, uh, everybody. How do you use moving averages to not lose money? The only thing I care about with respect to moving averages is the slope because the slope tells us about trend. And I would encourage every single one listening, look at all the stocks in your portfolio, only look at their 200-day moving averages. Are they upward sloping? Are they sideways? Or are they downward sloping? You want to own stocks with upward sloping 200-day moving averages. Statistically, those are the type of stocks you're rewarded for owning. And it's one of the reasons, Francine, to look at moving averages in an equity study on a log axis. Mm. Because then you've got the normalized y-axis and the slopes line up where slope matters. Was that too much, Francine? A little bit too much, but actually, Chris, the, the point was you're sounding very much like Tom Key. Now I know where he gets it. Slope matters, that and right. I agree with that. Yeah. Um, Chris, talk to me a little bit about yen, because if you look at the moving averages, 100 day and 50, there, there are definitely some technical barriers or levels on yen. Yeah, I think when you look at particularly the longer term uh, dollar yen chart, I do think we are still uh, in a longer term phase where we're going to see yen weaken. Tactically, I'm less convinced of that call. Um, but you know, you look at some of these longer term levels. I, I don't know why uh, you're not going to revisit 120, maybe 125. Ultimately, uh, on your way to 135 or 140. As a consequence of this, I think we ought to look at Japanese stocks uh, as a long term call here. The Nikkei looks really good, both hedged and unhedged. Uh, that in my impression, is not getting enough attention. How well Japanese stocks have acted the last six or seven months after what was a pretty devastating bear market. You had the Nikkei down 35% uh, from mid-14 through mid-16. I think we've seen a big turn there, and I think ultimately weaker yen probably contributes to that move. So, Chris, do you prefer equities overall as opposed to currencies because we've seen too much volatility on currencies? Yeah, I think um, right now some of the more... uh, some of the clearest trends are probably in the equity market. I think the FX market is uh, trying to get a handle on what direction the macro story will go. So I'd say in terms of convictions, I probably have some stronger convictions in equities here. We touched on this earlier. Let's do it again. I think it's so important. Manus Cranny had a fantastic interview with the head of OPEC, the mm-hmm. secretary general. And I was thunderstruck by how he talked his book, fine, we all know they're going to do that, against the one-way bet on long oil. Yeah. How do you technically adapt to the noise and the positioning out there on any given item? Well, with respect to oil in particular, as you know, Tom, it's a very crowded long. I always think of things, well, if everyone's long, shouldn't it be going up? And it stands out to me that over the last you know, four, five, six, seven, eight weeks, oil really hasn't made any progress. That not the best signal in terms of what we can expect from oil, I think, here mm-hmm. in the future. If everyone's already there, who's left to buy? I think you could probably see WTI creep towards 60, but I would temper right. my return expectations much above that. Does technical analysis help you in the bond market now, or is there such a distortion 
in financial repression that you can't use your world? I think technicals is most helpful in the bond market right now because it reminds us how important history here is. We have to go back to the 1950s for the last time interest rates started to go up. And what we learned from the early 50s is once they start to move, you set in motion a 10 or 15 year trend change. And I right. think if you look at the. 50s, well, is that, are we there? I mean, critically, are coming out of Eisenhower. Yes. Are we to the point where out of the 53 deflation, we're back to the great reflation to, Al, to, to Alan Volcker? Help me here, Francine. Paul Volcker of the 1980s. I think we just had this 1951 moment where the regime change is now in place. And with every regime change, the rules of the game also have to change. And that's right. what technical analysis is all about. We just spent the yeah. last 30 years being a buyer of every single pullback in bonds. I think we want to be a seller of every single rally in bonds now. This we got confused there with 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 Gregorian and, and Julius calendars, eh, Tom? Yeah, well, we'll talk about that when we got more time. Francine Lacroix, absolutely brilliant today, folks, on the birthday of the first president of the United States. We'll talk about that here. Uh, anyway, Christopher Rohn, thanks for the clinic. He is with Strategus at Research Trend-Based Technical Analysis. Love having him. We get a huge response when Mr. Veron joins. Francine Lacroix in London. I'm Tom Keen in New York. This is a pleasure. Craig Moffat with Moffat Nathanson has given us terrific perspective on wireless cable and, of course, with uh, Mr. Nathanson about what we do with our TV channel changer. Craig, a big announcement from you today. I'm going to call it a sea change. You go long on Verizon. Why? Well, hey, Tom, you know, it's it's really a value call. Um, and and look, let's be let's be entirely clear here. Verizon uh, is not a growth stock and uh, and the wireless sector is no longer a growth sector. Um, and so if you go back a ways to the days when expectations were very growthy, um, the stock really wasn't attractive and and it has disappointed people who were looking for exactly that growth. Yes. Now I think the pendulum's overshot. The stock is really cheap. Um, sentiment is absolutely awful. Um, and the stock's trading at about two-thirds the market multiple. You have to go back 15 years right. to find it this cheap relative to the market. I don't know what the free cash flow story is. Free cash flow five, six years ago was 16, 17 billion. They peaked out at 22 billion, 21 billion, and then basically free cash flows off a cliff. Can they sustain the dividend? And critically, can they actually become the utility you're talking about and raise the dividend at a high single digit level? No, no. Raise the dividend at a high single-digit level, no. Um, then again, you're getting a 5% dividend yield, and you should expect the dividend um, The dividend yield is, uh, is, is reasonably safe. Um, safer, for example, at Verizon than it is at AT&T, where the dividend coverage or the dividend payout ratio, if you will, as a percentage of free cash flow, is actually higher at AT&T than it is at Verizon. Um, uh, but I don't think it's reasonable to expect high dividend growth. I think this is a, um, again, this is a value stock now. And, and like any value stock, um, you tend to buy it um, when when people can't 
imagine anything going right. Um, right now, that's where sentiment is. Right. Um, the, the wireless operators look like they're in the midst of a price war. I would describe it a little differently. A price war usually hits price, right? It usually hits the average revenue per user. That's not really what this is. Verizon seems to be saying, we're going to start a spending war. We're going to start a war where... We pit our network against everyone else's networks at a time when AT&T is, is embroiled in, its, in trying to get its Time Warner deal closed and um, has less resources to spend on its network, where Sprint has been underspending on its network for years. And Verizon seems to be saying, we're going to double down on our network advantage, and we're going to, to create an unlimited war that if you want an unlimited war, you will find that, um, that that's a war we're going to win. And I, I think they're probably right. Now, that's not fantastic for free cash flow it's not fantastic right, right. for right. but it but, but it's, Craig, again it's a cheap stock and and you don't get to buy it this cheaply with that kind of dividend yield very often but Craig if and, and this is very similar there are parallels right in between this industry in the US and this industry in the UK once they win the war can they get margins back up well, I think to some extent you have to see what happens with industry structure. Um, as recently as Friday, um, your own service reported that um, that we are getting closer to Sprint making a, a, a formal overture to buy uh, T-Mobile or to sell to T-Mobile or, or find some combination. Um, and restructuring right. the industry, I think, would be good news for everyone. Okay. Um, Verizon might might be the biggest beneficiary. AT&T would obviously benefit as well. But interestingly, wireless is a relatively smaller part of their portfolio right. at AT&T now. Craig, um, very generous of you to be with us in the, in the minute that we've got left with you today. I underestimated John Lazure. The guy comes out of Fitchburg, Massachusetts. He wears a pink shirt. He's got long hair. I see the Verizon commercials this weekend. Is there any John Lazure in the people at Verizon? Can they really keep with the game change this guy, the, the creative destruction that T-Mobile has done? Well, look, they're, they're, they're never going to play the game the way John plays it with the bombast and the, the yeah. name-calling and Twittering. Um, but, but again, if they want to start a network war, um, no one's going to beat Verizon um, at the network. I think right now investor sentiment is that there is no differentiation in the network and that a network-based strategy is a dead-end street. Verizon, I think, would argue, no, that's not the case, um, that we are densifying our network. We're going to offer higher speeds and more capacity than anybody else, not because we're massively awash in spectrum or anything like that, but because we're simply going to do the heavy lifting of, yeah. of investing in the network yeah. when no one else will or can. Hey, Craig, thank you so much. Craig uh, Maffa, love to get him on, uh, particularly with the sea change. You know, the announcement, uh, Verizon, Yahoo, but also Moffat Nathanson on a value basis, as you heard there, going to a buy. Craig Moffat uh, with Moffat Nathanson, and we'll get him on for much longer discussion uh, soon. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of Global Connections, Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. This is well-timed. 
Um, Ambassador Burns, Nicholas Burns, is at the Harvard Kennedy School with his public service of decades. He's been a frequent uh, discusser of events with us. Ambassador, I am so flummoxed that I'm reading Jefferson. I, I'm <laughs> promising to read five books on Lincoln. I'm reading Lincoln's <laughs> Virtues right now, which Doris Carnes Goodman raved about on the ethics and morality of our 16th president. Um, I think of Secretary of States along the way and the fractious discussion. I think of John Hay in Lincoln's 1860 White House with Roosevelt, et cetera. What is Secretary Tillerson supposed to do? What is your wish list for Mm -hmm. our new Secretary of State? Well, first of all, Tom, I think he's a very good man with a lot of great qualities for this job. And I think he and Secretary Jim Mattis at Defense have a big challenge. The world wants to know that the United States is going to lead the West, be friendly to the European Union, to be faithful to NATO. President Trump has questioned all of that. But this is seven decades of American policy, so I think Tillerson and Mattis, they're saying the right things, they're going to the right places, they stand for what's right, but they're often contradicted by the president. This is a big challenge. I can't remember an administration yeah. where there's been so much distance between the president and the cabinet. In my studying of Jefferson's writings and, you know, reading the American Sphinx and, you know, Alice of Mount Holyoke and all that, I did notice the Swedish foreign policy response this weekend, which was Benny Anderson, Anna Frid Lindstad, <laughs> Angatha Falkskog, and Bjorn Ulvius. I butchered those names, Francine. I know, that's ABBA, right? Uh, that's ABBA. I mean, the <laughs> ABBA response to our Swedish foreign policy. I mean, Ambassador Burns. What's the next country we're going to insult? Well, I never thought that an American president would get into public spats with Australia, Mexico, and Sweden. I was with Carl Bildt, the former prime minister of Sweden, at the Munich conference over the weekend. He was just dumbstruck that President Trump would insinuate there had been some kind of an attack or disaster in Sweden when Sweden's a very peaceful country with a low crime rate and has successfully introduced and assimilated refugees. So the president needs to be very careful what he says in those tweets and in his speeches. He needs to be grounded in what our best experts are telling them, not what Fox News is telling them. Right. And and actually, Professor, this is exactly what I was going to ask. How does he get briefed better? Or or how should intelligence agencies brief the president so that he gets the facts right? I think he should listen to General McMaster, who he's just appointed as National Security Advisor. Presidents plug into the government. They have several million people working for them. We have the best minds who can, and apolitical people who can give him analysis. But if you watch Fox News and just base your analysis on, or, or MSNBC for that matter, you're not going to be getting the straight the straight news. And so I hope that General McMaster is going to impose some discipline. I hope the president will take an intelligence briefing every morning, as all other presidents have done, so that his decisions are granted in fact and not on supposition or not on fake stories. But who does he listen to? And, and you were praising Rex Tillerson. Does he listen to the Secretary of State? I hope he will, uh, and, and Secretary Mattis, and General McMaster, and General Dunford, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. These are professionals. These are objective people who believe in rational discussion and data analysis and won't just take news at face value. And I, I hope the president can do this. We all want him to succeed. We all want him to be successful for our country. But it's a very rocky start. And in Europe over the weekend at the Munich conference, just palpable concern on the part of many Europeans that the United States is no longer leading the West, 
when President Trump is castigating NATO and questioning whether the EU should even exist. These are existential issues for us and for the Europeans. We need some confidence. Right, but I thought that's why uh, Vice President Pence was dispatched. He did Brussels and he spoke to NATO. He did. To really try and reassure the Europeans that actually, guys, we're America, we're still here, we'll stand beside you. Exactly. And I was in the hall when Vice President Pence spoke in Munich. I applauded him. I thought he did very well in both Brussels and Munich. The problem is you, you take that very good uh, response by Vice President Pence, you juxtapose it to what the president is saying and doing. Melbourne, Florida tweets. It's jarring. And so you need consistent leadership from the top. And the president needs to plug in to his vice president, his cabinet secretaries, let them carry a lot of the water for him. What should, let's be prescriptive here and optimistic, sir, what should Trump order be? If we have world order, we have Zakar, uh, Fried Zakari's post-American world, what is the Trump order that you would think is the best outcome? I think what, we're, what we need to see is, what are his thoughts on how to promote trade in the world? Because we know he's against, but what is he for? How will he protect the West against Russian aggression? Because he's been very weak on that subject, and one would hope that he would toughen up. And then will the United States continue to think that its alliances are vital, and that we shouldn't be rooting for them, as the president has done with Brexit, for the EU to fall apart? I think those are the fault lines. Trade and defense and our alliances, American power is built on those three pillars, and the president has put them all into question. But his cabinet hasn't. And I, I, I hope very much we'll see an ascendancy in the cabinet of power and influence against some of the ideological people in the White House who just believe in disruption. Has the relationship between the U.S. and Russia changed in the last seven days? I, don't, I think there, I don't, I'm not sure if changed. Uh, you continue to hear from the president and others that they want some kind of a reset or a making up with Russia at a time when Russia has been assaulting Ukraine and Crimea and harassing the Baltic states. What I heard in Europe over the weekend, I saw Chancellor Merkel speak, speak, is that we need to hold the line against the Russians. Sanctions should be maintained, the economic sanctions, before we begin to make fundamental compromises with them. When I, when I look finally, sir, here, and, and Francine mentioned the process of getting this president up to speed with our foreign policy. Some would suggest, for, and Richard Haas does this, that foreign policy begins with a good domestic policy. Do you see a domestic policy that can support our foreign efforts? Well, I think that's right. And I, what I'm looking for, and, and the strength of a Trump agenda might be lowering the corporate tax rate, lowering personal income tax levels for middle-income Americans, and regulatory reform. I think a lot of Democrats would support that agenda. I thought that's what the Trump administration would lead with right after January 20th. They haven't. If you get back to that and stabilize the economy and show a vision forward for how to repatriate some of the capital that American corporations have overseas, that's a winning agenda. But all we've seen are spats with Mexico and Australia and Sweden. Are you set to serve this administration? Have you been called or have you just discarded any hope of serving? I have not been called. I, you know, I, I work for, for Secretary Hillary Clinton on her campaign, and I doubt very much I'll be called. But I wish them well, and I want, obviously, this administration to succeed. You'll, you, you could root for the Florida Marlins. I could see uh, No, I, I can't. I'm a Red Sox fan. Oh, oh really? Okay. <laughs> yes, that's, I am. Sir, that's the only reason you're on the program. Nicholas Burns, <laughs> thank you so much, Ambassador Burns. Pitchers and catchers, Francine, right now. Nick Burns and I are. The, the Red Sox, Francine, are so loaded, you know they're going to break our, our hearts. They, they took a pitcher, Francine, from the Chicago White Sox over to the Boston Red Sox. 
And that's supposed to solve all our problems, like the guy that we took from Florida a year or two ago. Yeah, how much are they paid? I don't know whether you you don't want you get upset. They are so far. They make more than ABBA, and that's saying a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, that's our globe. Yeah, of fifteen twenty million a year easily. Anyways, Francine Lacroix, we'll we'll continue to brief her, and yes, we'll be fair and balanced. We'll do some (laughs) Yankees baseball as well. This is Bloomberg. We just spoke with Nick Burns, which is a great privilege, and we outdoor ourselves. One of the most interesting people in international relations, Dennis Ross, has a storied uh, bipolar and bipolitical career in international relations. The ambassador has worked with George Herbert Walker Bush. He has worked with President Clinton and has advised many others, uh, particularly on the Middle East. Ambassador Ross, wonderful to speak to you. You have a paragraph which stopped me cold in my tracks. At the end of 8, 9, 10 thoughtful pages, you go into avoiding transformational approaches. Fixing has proven counterproductive. Does President Trump want to fix everything? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, look, when you look at his approach, I think you'd have to say that most of his priorities are not in the foreign policy area. Most of his priorities seem to be in the domestic policy area. To the extent to which he has outlined priorities in foreign policy, they fall into two categories. One is trade, uh, and the other uh, is ISIS uh, and and dealing with terror. You really haven't seen something beyond that. You have an interesting kind of distinction between... What he has basically stated publicly, and now what you see his cabinet officials saying, uh, and the vice president, they have all gone to, you know, you now have had uh, vice, the vice president, the secretary of defense, secretary of state, all in Europe, all reaffirming the NATO alliance, all reaffirming the European Union. Uh, so the kind of commitments they're making as it relates to the alliance, although, to be fair, they're talking about burden sharing, but that's not a new theme. If you look at Robert Gates's uh, valedictory speech to NATO, he emphasized that we couldn't be two different kinds of alliances where some contribute mm-hmm. and play a certain kind of role and others don't. So it's, it's not as if that's a, a new theme, uh, but I think raising questions about NATO, which seem to come from the president as a candidate, uh, is that that effort to sort of address the kind of uh, questions that were raised in light of what he was saying seems to be what we're seeing from uh, the people he's now appointed to be his major cabinet officials. So I, a long-winded answer to your question, I, I think at this point that his focus still remains much more on the domestic side right. than on the policy side. Right. Yeah, Ambassador, I just wanted to, to get back to, um, for example, the travel ban. Right. What do we know about the travel ban? Does it, does it help or hinder ISIS? And how does the president view this? Well, I think the president views, uh, the president has been convinced, uh, from his public statements at least, that the, 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 we are facing a real threat uh, of refugees and, and, uh, and through immigration, that kind of infiltration, that somehow 
ISIS sympathizers or ISIS activists or ISIS agents will insinuate themselves into this flow of people, and therefore we have to have extreme vetting. Uh, and he was, you know, this, the executive order that was put out there was put out there, was obviously rushed out there in a way that uh, cast a kind of uh, blanket exclusion from seven countries. Uh, now, obviously, it's had to be revised since then. You know, it raised questions uh, among the Iraqis in particular. Those who put their lives on the line for us were somehow excluded from being able to come here. That's being corrected. Greenheart green card holders, uh, that's been corrected. And obviously a more narrow kind of executive order is going to be put out, but it's still governed by a principle that we have to gain greater control over those who are coming into the country. That Partly that relates internationally, partly that relates to our, our close-in borders like Mexico. That clearly does reflect a kind of a preoccupation that we've heard from, uh, from candidate Trump and now President Trump. Uh, in terms of of fighting ISIS, you know, when you say you're going to destroy ISIS, it's not just a military uh, phenomenon that you're dealing with. You're dealing with an idea. So the challenge, and this is where I think the executive order, uh, at least the way it was rolled out and the, and the perception that was created about it, was not necessarily helpful. ISIS wants to create an image, and this is true for all the radical Sunni Islamists uh, as well. They want to create an image that it's us versus them. ISIS itself has this concept of the of the gray zone, where there are Muslims who live like in Europe but uh, don't identify with them, and they want to create a sense of polarization so that it's, it becomes us or them. The, the more this becomes a clash of civilizations as opposed to a clash within a civilization, as opposed to a struggle within Islam, as opposed to, in a right. sense, Muslims you know, who can be ultimately the only ones who can discredit ISIS. We can't discredit ISIS. It has to come from within Muslim-majority countries. To the extent to which we're playing into the hands of, of an ISIS narrative, obviously the, the framing and the portrayal of the executive order uh, was not helpful in that regard. Well, Ambassador, thank you so much. Dennis Ross with us this morning. We'll have to continue this discussion. We'd like to get you on for a much longer period, Ambassador, as we uh, can. Dennis Ross is with the Washington Institute for Near East uh, Policy. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.